Galen is making sure today that I am sufficiently wired so that when I wander away from the podium, we'll still get this on tape. Our text today is um, Romans chapter 12 um, and uh, verses 9 through 21. Please listen as I read the inspired word. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Notice the congregational response and all the congregation said in response to the reading of the inspired word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have your Bibles open to uh, Romans chapter 12. Um, As I pointed out last week, Paul is articulating how we're supposed to live in light of this glorious worldview that he's uh, given to us. Uh, I'd like to remind you that I'd like to remind you that uh, the Bible is a very practical and a down and uh, dirty book. It's made for day-to-day living. Uh, do you understand that the Bible did you ever notice the Bible says very little about heaven? Did you notice that? Should we turn this off? You ever notice the Bible says very little about heaven? Do you know why that is? Heaven's going to be there when you get there. And that's all you need to know. The Bible is essentially how to live in this life. Now we have a lot of people today who are obsessed with sort of speculation. What kind of clothes are we going to wear in heaven? Are we going to have like Twinkies and milkshakes? Or, you know, what's, you know is there life? I'm going to read the Bible and find out, is there life on other planets? Essentially, the Bible is not interested in topics like that. The Bible is essentially interested in what your relationship to God should be and how you're supposed to live in this life. That's what the Bible's all about. And that's what we see in these verses, by the way. Um, virtually every one of these exhortations here, and we're going to just go through them briefly in a minute and, and make some very pointed application. Virtually every one of these exhortations is, not all of them, but almost every one, is, uh, is horizontally oriented. Now, you know what I mean by that. It has to do with your relationship with other people, particularly your relationship with other believers and brothers and sisters. Now, there are one or two of them that have to do with your relationship God, to God. That's called a vertical relationship. Now, I want to express this because it's very important. 
we cannot forget about man in our responsibility to God. This was a problem, by the way, of some of the older... It's not as much a problem today, but a lot of the older Christians, older spirituality, particularly like a 40 to 150, even like 400 or 500 years ago, there were a lot of They understood that they were to be right with, in their hearts uh, with God, right in the sight of God. And there was a passion and an obsession to be right with God. Many of them, in fact, thought that the world, living in this world, would sort of uh, distract them from doing that. And so what... to sort of give themselves sort of more completely to this, uh, many of them at least, to this vertical relationship with God. Even many Protestants held that view. And you almost got the impression, reading some of them, or even talking to some of these people, even today, that it doesn't really matter how they treat other believers. That doesn't matter. The important thing is, well, I am right with God. God and I are doing business. My heart is right with Him. We have wonderful, beautiful communion with God. And then somebody might say to him, yeah, but how are you treating your brother and sister? Well, they're not really important. What's really important is my relationship to God. Now, is that a biblical understanding? Is that what the Bible teaches? By no means. There is the other extreme, and I must confess that today, this extreme tends to be more prominent. You know what that extreme is too, don't you? We live in a very postmodern and highly relationalized world. We have many Christians today in many churches whose entire faith is about basically getting along with everybody else. Just sort of getting along and having like a really good relationship with other Christians and making sure everything is right with other Christians. Is this still bothersome? Is it really, really bad? Okay, let's turn this off, please, and we're not going to... I'm not going to preach the Word of God if that thing is not going to... Thank you, Dalen, for working on it, but we need to... I don't want to be distracted by that. So, I'll just have to stand here, and you'll have to listen to me. So, their, their notion is that... Um, we need to understand the biblical teaching is that we cannot slight God in our obligation to man. So... If anything today that we need, we need in, in many quarters a return, a passionate, a passionate return to the necessity of a right relationship with God. We need to have a proper relationship vertically. We need to have a proper relationship horizontally. Uh, we know that because Jesus Christ said that there are two great commandments. What are they? Loving God with all of your heart, soul, strength, might, and mind. And what is the second, is second great commandment? Loving your neighbor as yourself. So both of these are essential. Um, I could preach an entire message on each of these exhortations, and uh, you know me, I certainly will not do that, but I'm going to emphasize some of these. Notice, first of all, in verse uh, 9, the requirement of guileless love. Let your love, by the way, the translation there is agape, self-giving love, be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. I imagine there are few sins that are more disgusting than hypocrisy. Certainly there were more disgusting None more disgusting, it seemed, to Jesus Christ, who despised the hypocrisy of uh, the Pharisees and other Jews at the time. Uh, our love, in this exhortation, it's essentially saying that our love is to be, um, uh, it's to be uh, simple, it's to be uncalculated, it's to be unfeigned. Um, one of my uh, children was recently visiting a, a particular evangelical church, and this child came back to me and was talking about it and said, this was just, there was such fakiness here. People would come up to us and we'd never been there before and hug us and everything and saying, we love you, we love you, oh, this is wonderful, we love you, we love you. This is just kind of gooey. What's going on here? They didn't even know us. 
Well, I can't look into the hearts of those people, but it's possible that what's behind that is sort of a feigned love. Uh, Know this and know it well. People are an end in themselves. People are not a means to an end. Have you ever met people um, who use people? You say, yes, Andrew, we call them con men. Yeah, that's true. The problem is that there are a lot of con men in the church. I have met people in the church, not in this congregation now as far as I know, who essentially are con men. They basically use people for their purposes. They have places that they want to get in life or things they want to accomplish in life, and they basically feign love or friendship in order to get what they want out of people. And you know how you can know that? Eventually, when they don't get what they want, or if they don't get it right away, all the love seems to evaporate. I'm just not feeling the love anymore, because they don't get what they want. Uh, Biblically, it seems there are a few things more disgusting than that. Remember this, people are an end in themselves. Love people for who they are, being made in the image of God. But here particularly, it's talking about believers. Those to whom we are united by faith in Christ, love them for who they are. Care for them for who they are. Not for what you can get out of them. And then notice also in verse 10, um, we have this expression, kindly affections to one another with brotherly love. Interesting, different Greek word there with brotherly love. Can any of you here that know a little Greek, tell me what you suspect that the translation there is of brotherly love? It's not agape. You know what it is? Philo, right. In fact, the whole expression there of the words together is, are you ready for this? Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of... Brotherly love is based on a biblical idea. Not that there's a lot of it there today, but that was the original idea. And that's what's mentioned here. That's an extension. Notice it says, in honor, preferring one another. Which is to say, and it's talking specifically about the church, but it's also true more widely. There's no place for, uh, for self-centeredness. Now, this is certainly true, and I'm going to mention about marriage here for a minute. Um, some of you have not been married long. Some of you have been married a long time. But know this in a marriage, it's vitally important, that the love in marriage is essentially about sacrifice. The love in marriage is essentially about not getting your way all the time. In fact, it may be about not getting your way most of the time. The person who stands up in a marriage and is constantly saying, and this is a dramatically secular way of talking, well, I have my rights. Yes, you read that in the Bible, didn't you? Didn't the Bible say that? Right? The Bible says that in a marriage, you just stand up all the time and say, I have my rights. Is that what you read in Ephesians chapter 5? No, what does it say there? That the man is supposed to sacrifice for his wife to the extent that if necessary, he is to sacrifice his own life. So I think I'd be willing to sacrifice my life if it came to it. You wouldn't even sacrifice like buying her a new dress. You won't even sacrifice doing something for her. So don't be hypocritical on that point, man. And ladies, the same thing is true with you. Say, well, my husband, he's just like sometimes an ogre, and he just, he just wants to do this and that, and he just, yeah, and you know, sometimes, guess what you need to do? You need to say yes in self-sacrifice. I'm going to give in. You don't, you don't sort of count. You don't just keep score in a marriage. You live in brotherly love, self-sacrificial love. That's certainly true in marriage. It's also true in the church. Um... Are you and I always obsessed with getting what we want, with getting what we want in the church? I've been thinking about this, doing some reading. I believe that increasingly that is a a concession to um, a consumerist mentality that we have in culture. Do you realize that we have entire churches today, entire churches 
that are based on the notion of commodification. That is, the, the church is, is a commodity. The church is exactly giving people what they want. You want like, you want like Starbucks, but everybody want to be walking around with Starbucks in the foyer before church? We'll do that. Uh, you want a church that has like small groups that sort of meet all the time? I mean, we'll just do that. Uh, you want a church where, you know, we don't want to carry around things like this because, I mean, that looks, this Bible, that looks kind of old, doesn't it? That doesn't look old. It's got this leather cover and it says Holy Bible on it. That kind of scares people off. And we don't want to scare people off. So let's sort of rearrange the church to, to make it palatable to consumers. Um, there are many churches like that and there are sometimes very, very large churches. Not all large churches, but some of them are like that. And you know what that is? That is a concession to postmodernity, and that is a sin. And it is wrong. The scripture is very clear there. Now, um, the question we should have in a congregation is not what do we want, but what do our brothers and sisters want? The elders of this congregation constantly have to be doing that. In our elders' meeting recently, one of our men brought up an idea that uh, wasn't a bad idea at all, not an unbiblical idea. And some of the other men said, you know what, I don't think a number in the congregation would really support that view. And you know what this guy did? He says, well, I'm good. No, he didn't say that. He said, that's fine. He says, I want to do what's going to be best for the congregation. It wasn't a matter of truth. It wasn't a matter of fidelity to the word. It was just an operational matter. That's how you and I ought to operate in the congregation. The goal is not to please everybody else. The goal is to try to, is to recognize that if you love someone, you're willing to sacrifice your own viewpoint. Now, there is a reason for that. One of the commentators, Cranfield, pointed this out. It was very powerful. The main reason for this, he asserted, is and why we ought to listen to other people in the church and in the marriage, is to recognize that Jesus Christ is in them too. Now, you know, we can be so arrogant. At least I can be. Maybe you can't be. Somebody comes up with an idea, and I think, you know what? But my ideas are better than yours because I'm probably smarter than you. Or I'm more spiritual than you are. And who are you anyway to think your stupid idea is as good as mine? Now, I'm being a little facetious there, but kind of we think that way, don't we? Do you ever recognize that if somebody else suggests something that maybe that Christ is in them too? You say, well, my idea is a really spirit-led idea. Um, do you don't think everybody else is spirit-led too? You see how arrogant that is? Christ is in our brothers and sisters. And then notice also in um, verse 11, not lagging in diligence, a, a calling to diligence and fervency, which is to say there's no place for laziness in the Lord's work. Uh, I would also suggest there's no division between secular and sacred. That is that everything we do, what does the scripture say? Everything we do, do it heartily as to the Lord. You know, I was talking with Sharon, we were driving the, uh, yesterday and we were thinking, Boy, it's just amazing in our culture today, the concern for detail, um, the concern for customer service, in fact. I don't know if you have noticed this. Maybe I'm just getting old and cranky. I hope I'm not getting old and cranky. But it seems that years ago that people were much more concerned with attention to detail and things like that. And maybe this is an indictment of all of us. There's, no, there's much a less sense today of diligence and of working very hard to make sure that things are done right for others and particularly right for the Lord. The scripture is actually opposed to that. This, I know this seems very practical. And some people say, well, that's not very spiritual. I mean, the spiritual thing is just sort of my own warm feelings in my heart. But, you know, this is just like a very practical thing, not lagging in diligence. In other words, working very hard. Don't be lazy. There is a great deal of spirituality in working really hard. Young people, when you're in school, 
We have a bunch of intellectually, boy, I'm on a roll here. We have a bunch of intellectually lazy young people today. You know what? The Bible says much study is weariness to the flesh. Now, how many, you know that? If you're going to know the Bible and if you're going to know mathematics and science and all, it's going to take some effort. If your attitude is, well, I just want to like read it once and hope everything's going to be okay, you're wrong. And if you want to go to a job and say, well, I'm not going to be go to a job where I've got to get up early. And, man, I have to work eight hours a day, and it's just really hard. And the boss makes me really work hard. That's exactly right. And there's nothing wrong with that. No place for laziness. And then um, notice this is very, very powerful. Verse 11b, it says, uh, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The, the, actually, a literal translation there, I was really a little surprised to find this. But a literal translation says, it's essentially uh, a glow in the spirit. Now, um, I know that we have a lot of wild and wacky things going on today, particularly among like charismatics and Pentecostals who use the Holy Spirit as an excuse to do all sorts of things like bark like dogs and lie down like they're slain in the spirit and all that stuff. But we can't cut verses like this out of the Bible. Um, the idea that, you know, the more spiritual you are, sort of the more rational and the sort of sadder and more grave you are. And our worship Sunday is really, truly spiritual if we're really, really somber. I'm sorry, but that conflicts with the meaning of that verse. It means a glow in the Spirit and excited about what the Holy Spirit is doing and His work in our lives. And I'll tell you where you, it means that you have spiritual fire in the belly. Where you really tend to see that in church, by the way, is in the expression of singing. Uh, in the scriptures, and we won't turn there because of time, but in Ephesians there is this direct association between filled, being filled with the Spirit and what? Singing. So if you sing out well from your heart with great enthusiasm and joy, that really is a mark of someone who is aglow with the Spirit of God. And there's great delight and great joy being aglow with the Spirit. And then notice also in uh, verse uh, 12, uh, rejoicing in uh, hope. That is a trait that's often mentioned in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, hope. And it's one that we gloss over because the biblical idea of hope is not often the um, idea of hope that we have today. Hope for us tends to be uh, sort of... um, a, a speculative, a, a favorable speculative desire. That is, well, I'm hoping that that handsome boy that I saw called me. Or, I'm hoping to get a raise. Or, yeah, we're hoping to go on vacation in a couple of years to Europe and having a good time and seeing the Louvre and stuff. That's not what the Bible means by hope. Uh, biblically, the, the term hope is an eschatological term, which means that, clearly, which means that we're holding on to something that is very certain. It's just that we don't see it yet. It's not sort of we hope. It's something that we absolutely know is going to happen. It's just that we're living by faith and not by sight. We don't see it yet. Now, that's why it says in verse um, verse 12, to rejoice in hope. Um, It's not the pleasant desire that something may happen. It's joy that derives from assurance. So for believers, the future is as bright as the promises of God. That leads, by the way, also, notice in B, uh, to um, perseverance. Notice very carefully there, it says, uh, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. 
there is a reason why we can be hopeful in very hard times, and that is that good times are on the way. Do you know that for the believer that tribulation is always temporary? Did you understand that? What you are going through and I'm going through today, the tribulation some of you specifically are going through right now, the hardships, uh, people around you making bad decisions, physical ailments, those tribulations are temporary and we can persevere because we know that they are temporary. Um, We live in in resurrection power and therefore we will win. Um, I think that Christians more and more on the basis of these texts need what we might call a godly killer instinct. Uh, There is an ungodly killer instinct, and there's a godly killer instinct. How many of you have been watching the Olympics? Okay. Um, You know, America has some very talented, talented Olympians. Um, I was hearing a couple of the, some of the most amazing ones are the um, ladies volleyball, the beach volleyball. Have have you ever seen those gals? Those Those are just amazing. I heard both of them interviewed. And they said, well, one reason that we win is because we have a killer instinct and we expect to win. And within the rules, we'll do anything we can to win. I mean, that's what we're here for. We're not here to compete. We're here to win. Um, I suspect that there are not enough Christians today to have a godly killer instinct, which is to say that they don't understand that they're not here to compete, that they're here to win. Those of you, by the way, businessmen... In the marketplace, there is nothing wrong with having an absolute killer instinct. You're there not to compete. You're there to win. More importantly, as believers, we're we're there to defeat. If you don't believe this, read Ephesians 6. We're there to defeat Satan, and by God's grace, though we will fail from time to time, to defeat him every time. That gives us the strength for perseverance. Expect to win. We're called to win. We're not called to lose. Now, I know that's not a popular idea today. Where people say, well, it's kind of fair. It's fair if everybody, everybody wins, you know, and we're going to change the rules so that this person can win so that their feelings aren't hurt. And in school, I mean, the, you know, the children that say that four times four equals 47, we don't want to say that they're wrong because we'll hurt their feelings. And if somebody else gets an A because they do well, you know, we don't want to hold them up. That's just nonsense and it's not biblical and it's false. We as believers are called to win. Uh, Notice also in the last part of verse 12, continuing steadfastly in prayer. uh, Notice it says continuing steadfastly. Some of the translations say continuing instant. It basically means to stay close. You're constantly close to prayer. Uh, Stephanie um, Lutz and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about, uh, after church, about distractions. we're, we're, We're attempting to live a godly life, but children come into our lives, mommies. And, and, you know, we're accustomed to reading our Bible or spending time in prayer. And now we have to, like, play with children and change dirty diapers. And it's not very spiritual. And we can't really spend as much time with God as we wanted. And you know what? A, there's nothing wrong with that. B, it is nonetheless easy to get sort of distracted. What this text means is basically stay close in prayer. Constantly be ready to spend time in prayer. Uh, This doesn't coincide very well, by the way, with the notion that prayer always has to be written out and very formal. I've talked to people before that say, well, yeah, it's like I can get home from work, and then I go into my room, and I turn the light off, and I get down on my knees, and I pray. Well, if you have to wait to do that every time, you're not going to spend much time praying, particularly if you're working hard. According to the scriptures, prayer is very immediate, 
It's very direct. Uh, it's very passionate. From time to time, I'm just driving around as you should be, and we need God. I need this, and I need it desperately. Lord, please help us. You're with a friend. As I know, I'm talking with you, and you should do this with one another. Ladies, when you're talking with one another and a need comes up, don't feel embarrassed to say, let's pray about it right now. And you don't have to have a long, pious prayer that you pull out of your pocket. Hold this person's hand and say, God, we need you desperately. Here's a particular need. Please help us to do that. That is direct, immediate, informal prayer. And that's how we stay close in prayer. Then notice in chapter in, in, in 13a, uh, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. Um, clearly, this demands charity to our fellow believers. But you know, there is a deeper sense here in the Greek that you don't often get. And that is we're called to identify, we're called to identify with our brothers and sisters. I'd like to call this uh, deep empathy. We also see it in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. In other words, we sort of walk in their shoes. We have people in this congregation right now that uh, are in ill health. Um, our responsibility, when that time comes, is to have an empathy, recognizing what it would be like to be in their situation and doing our best to comfort them. Uh, we have some here that have breaches in family and in relationships through no fault of their own. Your responsibility of mine is to sort of walk in their shoes and to show what kind of empathy that is. There are several here that have had deaths in the family. We're to have empathy with them. That doesn't mean like putting on an emotional show. It means saying, Lord, give me the strength to understand, to empathize with what they're going through, and sort of sharing the burden with them. That's what the scripture means when it speaks of this sort of distributing to the saints. And then notice in verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And then did you notice verses 17a and then 19 and 20? It's talking about non-vindictiveness. We're called to pray for those who assault us as Christians. And by the way, we'll get to this later, but chapter 13 is pointing out that the real vindication we get is the job of the state in physical matters. It's not the job of individuals. The point he's making here is that Christians are not vindictive people. Christians are not grudge holders. Now, I'd like to stop there because I don't know about you, but I, this is a problem that I have. I certainly can hold grudges. Somebody does something and I say, you know what, that is just not right. And I sort, of, I sort of analyze in my mind all of the reasons that this is wrong. Why did this person do this? This is very, very wrong. And that person really deserves to see that this is wrong. And God, you need to take care of that person. And sort of that grudge can go on and I need to stop and I need to say and do by the grace of God. Lord, that's wrong. Let me put that aside, set it aside. There is a reason for that. And it's citing the Old Testament in verse 19. What does Jehovah say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, understand this about grudges and about resentment and about bitterness toward other people. A lot of times it's justified. I don't mean the act itself is justified. But it's understandable. This person did something that was wrong evil, corrupt, destructive, harmful to you, harmful to your family, harmful in your life. It caused all sorts of difficulties. And know this, listen carefully, know this, grudges don't destroy anybody else, but they can destroy you. They just kind of eat you up on the inside. They eat you up on the inside. And it's unbiblical for that reason and for others. Understand this, God keeps the record books and God judges in his own good time. God knows everything that's going on. He's aware of it. So there's no reason for you and I to hold grudges. And then I mentioned, I want to mention again verse 15. 
the holy empathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I'll never forget uh, the morning that my first child was born, um, Richard Andrew. I called the best man in my wedding, uh, my close friend John Green, also a minister of the gospel. He was about 10 years older than me. Oh, man, he's an old man now. He was in my wedding, and he's an old man. And um, I told him that he just rejoiced so much. with We were so happy. I was a father. I was like 20 years old, and I'm still going to have four more kids. Then he later told me something I didn't know. That very day, his brother, Tim, who's also a minister, there are five preacher's sons in that family, um, Tim called him and said, John, I want you to pray. My son has been diagnosed with a very rare um, blood disease. Uh, subsequently, he, uh, the, the young man turned out, everything turned out to be okay, lived with it. But uh, John mentioned, he said, this was, he says, I thought of this text right when that happened. He said, Andrew called me and I rejoiced so much with him. And yet my brother called me, it was just like an hour, less than an hour later. He says, my brother called me and I cried and wept with him because there is this sort of holy empathy with each one of us. That's what the Bible is essentially talking about there. We're able to weep with those and cry with those who are going through great difficulties and rejoice with those who get a, who get a great raise at work or make a lot of money or have some great victory or, or a woman who gets some great blessing in her life. That's what the scripture is speaking of here. And then in verse 16, notice uh, being of the same mind one to another. Don't set your mind on the high things and so on. Uh, that's speaking essentially about the humility and friendships. Don't angle for friendships only with the high and mighty. Walk very kindly and sympathetically with humble people. Don't say, I'm going to make my friends of all of the people that really have a lot of money or that really are smart or so on. Paul's very clear there. He said, just find people all, all, all around. Find people that are humble and be friends with them. Be, within the church, he's speaking specifically. Be friends with all of them. By the way, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no room for any cliques of any kind. That doesn't mean that you have to be equally close with everybody. Obviously, people in the church, you're closer to some people than others because your personality gels. That's understandable. The Bible doesn't forbid that. But what the Bible does forbid is the idea that there are sort of sociological cliques in the church. Okay, so here are all the smart people here. Here are all the wealthy people here. Here are all the good-looking people here. I couldn't be a member of that one. Uh, here, are all the, um, here are all the cool people here. And that you sort of you know, get together and we sort of party up within the church. If there's anything that is unbiblical, it is that. Uh, in the early church, I'll say this and I'll be almost done. Uh, in the early church, it's remarkable. Um, if you went over to Rome, outside Rome, you could go into the catacombs. And you, some of you know that many of the Christians actually met in the catacombs. It's remarkable. They would sort of mark on the walls, and there are still uh, statements there, artifacts there of, of the early churches. And there's an indication there that the very wealthy, and there were a number of wealthy people in the early church, the very wealthy people would come in the catacombs and sit right next to the servants and the very weakest, and they would sit together and rejoice before the Lord together and love the Lord Jesus Christ together, uh, together and be passionate toward him together and have communion together. That is a biblical teaching. And that is what's being spoken of in the scripture, particularly in verse, uh, in verse 16. Now, there's a final thing, and there's much more I could say about this, but I want you to notice, especially in verse um, 18, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Did you see the qualification there? It doesn't say that you have to be at peace with everyone. Can you be at peace with people who are at war with God? No. 
But this is talking specifically about the church of Jesus Christ. Within the church of Jesus Christ, work passionately to be at peace with everyone. And you know what that means? That means giving up your rights and mine. If you disagree with somebody, that's okay. Disagree with them. If you don't like what somebody did, that's fine. If you think you need to talk to them, do that. Go to them, hug them, pray with them, cry with them. Say, hey, I don't agree. Let's talk about this. The scripture is very clear that we're called to live basically at peace with one another. Isn't peace a wonderful thing? I think peaceably is a wonderful thing. You say, well, I want us all to agree. There's a young man in our church one time. And he said, um, you know, every single issue that comes up in the church, we need to have a big, big discussion because everybody in the church is required to agree with everybody else. Um, Did I mention that he was a young man? Uh, I said, partner, did you just fall off the turnip truck last week? There wasn't even that kind of agreement on everything in the early church. And the Bible didn't enforce that. You see it in in Acts chapter 15. There was clear disagreement over some issues between the uh, Gentile churches and the Jewish churches. And and guess what scripture says in Acts, Acts 15? That's okay. That's okay on secondary issues. That's not the problem. Uh, You live in peace not when everybody's agreeing. You live in peace when you disagree and still have peace. That's what we are called to do. And we're called to do it because of what Christ has done for us. On the cross, we can live in peace because he has made peace for us. Let us pray.